Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today is going to be a great episode with Colby Crosland of Spinnerfall Guide Service. And we're going to be talking about fly fishing on the Green River in Utah below the Flaming Gorge Reservoir in the ABC sections. And we're going to be talking specifically about the spring fishing with the blue-winged olive hatch and then moving into the early summer and the the big hatch that uh, people, you know, come from all over for and that is the cicada hatch and whether it will happen or not this year uh, we talk all about cicada fishing blueing dollar fishing and it's a great episode uh, before we get to that episode i want to thank the sponsors of this podcast uh, gohunt.com insider kuyu.com outdoorsmans.com and phonescope.com and you can Look down in the show notes, and uh, these companies are offering uh, discounts if you use uh, the promo code uh, listed in the show notes. I want to thank them for their support. I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for your support of this podcast. And I want to encourage you, if you have any questions or any comments about the podcast or people you want to see on the podcast or if you want to send me photos or what have you, I love uh, interacting with the listeners. And you can email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy this uh, fishing uh, portion of the podcast. And for those of you that don't know, I spend, uh, you know, basically the middle of May through the end of August in Colorado. And I am a big fisherman. I've been a fisherman ever since I was a little kid, and I specifically love fly fishing, but I love all types of fishing, and I'm going to be bringing you more fishing episodes here on this podcast, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, let's get right to this episode, and uh, guys, just thank you for your loyal support of this podcast. You can follow along our adventures on my Instagram page, at jscottoutdoors, my Facebook business page is J. Scott Outdoors on Facebook. Uh, you can follow along there. Give us a like. Uh, if you want to send me a direct message, you can do that on Facebook or on Instagram. I try and uh, respond immediately. You can also go to my website, which is jscottoutdoors.com. And uh, that links out to uh, the podcast. It links out to some of my other businesses, Colburn and Scott Outfitters, GouldsTurkeyHunts.com, among other things. And there's some good content there. So let's get right to this episode with Colby Crosland. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today's going to be a fun episode. We have Colby Crosland of Spinnerfall Guide Service out of the Green River in, in Utah, uh, Colby's been a guide there with Spinnerfall for seven years. Uh, I admire uh, Colby's work on Instagram and watching his films and such. Uh, Colby, how you doing today? I'm doing great, Jay. Yeah, it's uh, fantastic to finally get you on the podcast. Um, I'm looking forward to talking to you about the Green River and, you know, we've got what I think is some of the best fishing uh, right in front of us, you know, over the next six months, say, uh, compared to, uh, you know, the winter fishing, you know, you might argue with there's some phenomenal fishing, but <laughs> certainly with the blue-winged olive, you know, the betas hatch 
coming on strong. The midge fishing, um, you know, is, is probably been strong, but then moving into the summer months with, uh, the, you know, the cicadas and in, uh, late May and early June, and then into the summer season when you get a lot of those hatches and then on into terrestrial season, I'm excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about it. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I want to start out, uh, Colby, uh, you're a guide on the Green River, but more specifically, you're, um, and you probably won't tell me much about this, but you have a reputation of being a phenomenal fisherman as far as someone with actually putting the fly rod in his own hands and being a great guide, but an excellent fisherman as well. Where did you hone your skills as far as being a great, great fly caster and someone that can really you know, real fishy guy, where have you honed those skills? <laughs> you know, I, I kind of started off as a, a self-taught fly fisherman. I grew up um, kind of like most guys out here in the West, fishing with my grandfather and throwing worms and trolling around in the old Tim tub and throwing the, the pop gear behind the boat. And I was probably in junior high and my father won a fly rod through one of his vendors and for Christmas asked for a reel and saved up and got some lines and flies and just kind of taught myself to to fly fish and throughout junior high and high school any chance i could get to get up into the mountains i was i was trying to fish so i mean I, there was really no place that i could say i honed the skills other than just going out and using them were were you one of those guys that um and are you one of those guys that kind of ha- you have your own style and such and and have you ever got an you know any formal training as far as casting or um are you are you one of those guys that just kind of you know kind of has your own style and has your own way of doing things i mean certainly we all know there's great fundamentals that that can be learned and most fly casters you know that have those fundamentals but w- where do you see yourself as far as like um, are you kind of a self-taught, you kind of have your own way, or are you kind of a, you know, a disciple of, of XYZ and, and you know, a, a real technical type fisherman? No, I'm definitely not a uh, technical fisherman. I, uh, I can definitely get a little bit of line out there, but I, I have a really, really ugly cast. It works, but it's, it's not pretty. It's funny, here in, in Salt Lake, we've got a lot of, some of the best casters in the world, and they, they all laugh at me and how ugly my cast is. So I definitely am not one of the FFF master casters or anything like that. But with that being said, um, and I, I think it's, it's, you know, it needs to be pointed out that it's just like golf and it's a lot of some of the other things. Some of the guys with some of the different types of techniques um, are some of the best players. Not always the person with the best swing is the best <laughs> golfer, but like I notice on a lot of the, you know, the one fly competitions and a lot of some of the different, you know, fishing competitions you've done extremely well. Do you attribute that to just your fishy sense of, you know, a sense of nature or, or what, you know, what do you attribute being, you know, in the zone, so to speak, quite a bit? Oh, it's just being out there doing it. I, I, I'm on the water enough to where I think that every now and then I, I place well. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, here in Utah, we have just so many amazing, amazing guys that are doing great things from Charlie Card and Travis Ruiz and placing at the GoPro games. And I mean, there's, there's just some amazing, amazing people. And that really might be part of it is having 
some guys around me that, that push it. Yeah. I'm competitive and I, I, I want to be good at what I do and having some really, really good talent around helps. And Charlie Card lives two doors down from me and man, watching his dedication and him out practicing his cast. And I mean, he is just one of the fishiest dudes around. So I think just being around him helps. That's awesome. Um, speaking about the Green River, um, before we really get into it, can you give a little bit of, um, you know, maybe a little bit of history lesson, maybe a little bit of geography lesson and kind of talk a little bit about the Green River, you know, ABC section uh, below Flaming Gorge uh, for maybe those people that maybe have never even heard of it or never even been there? Um, can you kind of tell us how it came to be and what we, what we're faced with now, as far as what, you know, the, the phenomenal river, the fishery that we have now, kind of how it came to be and where it's located and what have you. Yeah. So the Flaming Gorge Dam is in the Northeast corner of Utah. Um, the town that's where the dam is, um, Dutch John, the dam was built in the early sixties as water storage. And it created just an amazing, amazing tailwater. The first 10 years or so of the dam's existence, the water coming out of the reservoir was too cold. They took the water down really low. And the first 10 miles or so was, was kind of a dead fishery because it was so cold. But they put in what they call penstock tubes where they can draw the water from different depths throughout the different times of the year and can control the wet, the temperature of the water as it reaches the river and it has just turned the river into an amazing fishery. The biomass in it is so high. There's so many bugs. And that's, that's what started the green as such an amazing fishery. Um, so as you were talking, we have the A, B and C sections and they're just kind of what has delegated as the floats for the river. The A section goes from the dam down to little hole. And on that float, it's, the only place you can put in and the only place you can take out. And that's seven and a half miles. It has a walking path along the whole way. And when you see photos of the green and kind of the iconic green river imagery, that's what you're looking at is the A section. It has the most cicadas, the most betas. It's, it's just an amazing, amazing fishery. As far as floating it, it's a pretty easy float. It's a, a stretch of river that a lot of guys learn how to row a drift boat on. And let's break there. And uh, I'm trying to think of what to say next. Is that sounding okay? Yeah, no, that's great. Okay. And, and so, Colby, the A section, uh, because it's an it's an amazing fishery, and not that the B and C sections are not, it's also the most popular because people can put in at the dam. Uh, both guides, outfitters, you know, people rowing their own boats as well as pleasure floaters and what have you. And then they can take out at Little Hole, which is a paved. So the, the put in and take out are both paved. So would you say by far the A section gets more more pressure than any parts of, of uh, the, the rest of the river? Yeah, the A section definitely has the most angry hours on it. And as you were saying, it's because of the accessibility. I mean, from town... You can be from your hotel room to the river in 10 minutes. And when you get off the river, you can be back there in 10 minutes. It's, it's a really, really easy stretch to to navigate the, the access. 
I mean, and along with that trail system, it's a really, really easy, easy place to get to the fishing. And just and the fishing itself is pretty easy. And you know, when you talk about fish per mile, the green, um, the green below flaming gorge uh, has some of the highest fish per mile as far as talking about trout per mile. What are those densities? I know it's debatable and everybody has their own kind of take, but fish per mile in the A section is roughly what? From year to year and mile to mile on the A section, it's ranged from 22,000 to, I think they said 12,000 per mile. And when you start like doing the math on that at 15,000 fish per mile, that's three fish per river foot. So, I mean, just the, the density of fish is unreal and it's really cool with how clear the river is too floating you can come across just i mean areas where you can see dozens and dozens of fish or a lot of fish i don't think people really can comprehend what fifteen thousand fish per mile actually is and not only high density of fish but you mentioned like the trail that goes from the dam to little hole so on river left so as you're going down mm-hmm. the river there's a trail but there is no trail on river right um no but but anybody can either walk from the dam or walk from little hole um and i believe there's some other access points as well and fish that entire stretch but it it's not as if someone can walk that like you can certainly walk that in a day no problem mm-hmm but it's not common for people to just go walk that trail and fish the whole river. Like there's so many fish that you kind of pick your area you want to go fish and then you can spend literally all day within a hundred yards there on that river. Yeah. No, that, that lower mile down at little hole, there's, there's a lot of people that post up there and we'll spend an entire weekend fishing kind of that same. I mean, and you said a hundred foot stretch, but I mean, there's guys that, that won't move 10 feet for a weekend and can catch fish consistently in that spot all weekend. But one really neat thing about the river is if you get down to Little Hole or up at the dam and put in a a 20, 30-minute hike and get away from that access point, you can go all the day and not fish around anybody other than the drift boats. With a little bit of work, you can have the river pretty much to yourself, which is a really, really cool thing about the green. And the fishing actually improves i think once you move up from little hole or down from little hole the other just thing because you've got system, fish that are fresher yeah you have fish that, that haven't been beat up all day and there's there's just something nice about not fishing around somebody else too i mean there's there's a lot of fish right there at the the ramps but if you can put in a little bit of work and get away from the ramps i think it improves your your day you might not catch more fish but it improves just why we go fly fishing at least in my opinion for sure and a section is primarily made up you're kind of in the canyon the whole way until you get to little hole and then it kind of opens up tell me about the b section where it goes from and then how that um how the river changes how the topography around changes you know the fish count you know the, Mm -hmm. the insects and what have you the B section is nine miles long, and it goes from Little Hole down to Browns Park. It has two takeouts down there, one at Indian Crossing and the other at Taylor Flats Bridge. The first three miles or so is still kind of in a canyon. It's not quite as deep and dramatic as the A section, 
but you, you definitely have some protection from the wind and times of the year, some protection from the sun, which is really nice to get some shade on the water. That trail that I was talking about from Little Hole actually goes about two and a half miles down the B section too, which is one thing that a lot of people don't know. Everybody just kind of jumps on that trail and goes up. But going down can be really, really productive, especially during the caddis and the yellow sally hatches in July. Um, halfway through the B section, we have Red Creek Rapid. It's our one rapid on the Utah section of the green that has, it's a pretty legit rapid. Um, if you don't know how to row a drift boat, I wouldn't suggest you to do it. It's, it's not, the, not your first fast water you want to take on. The first couple drops are, are pretty big drops, some obstacles, and then you keep some kind of quick water for about another half mile. So if you've gotten into trouble, it's pretty, pretty difficult to get out of trouble. It's definitely not a rapid that's unfloatable or scary, but you have to know how your boat works and you want to make sure your oar locks and your oars are in good shape because it definitely sinks a handful of boats a year. Can can get you in trouble if you don't know what you're doing. And as far as the fishing, it, it's still a really, really productive fishery on the B section. I think what scares the most people away from the B is one, the rapid, and then two, the drive out of Browns Park is 37 miles so you're looking at a 45 minute drive out and some of it on some some washboard and if you've had some weather it gets tough to pass at times through the last five or six years they've paved a little bit more of it so it's doable year-round when in years past it would it would definitely mud out and you couldn't get down to that lower section without a high clearance vehicle but uh what about the, your the road densities as far as fish as as you progress from little hole down b section um you start to lose some fish as far as density do you not yes you, you definitely do and you, you lose a lot of the rainbows once you get below red creek you you see a lot fewer rainbows and that's because they don't plant any of the rainbows down there or they plant a lot fewer um so every year they do do a pretty good stocking of rainbows but the browns are all a self self-sustaining population so every brown you catch on the river is a wild fish. It's not a native fish, but a wild fish. If them not stocking the B section as heavily, the fish count definitely goes down, and the biomass of bugs goes down a little bit as the water starts to warm up. And once you get below Red Creek, there's a little bit more silt in the water. So you have a different um, niche in the river. You're seeing different bugs. You're seeing fewer scuds, fewer mayflies, and in turn, a few, few fewer fish but it still has a really, really high fish count when you start looking at numbers and comparing them to other rivers that, that most people fish. Yeah, and some big fish, too. <laughs> you, you definitely see some bigger fish down there. But, I mean, the A section last week, somebody caught a 29-inch brown. So yeah, that, there's that, beasts on the A. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and then C section, uh, it, which I floated A and B quite a bit. I have never floated the C section. It's kind of a... It's kind of the, I don't know, I don't want to say the odd duckling, but it's definitely a totally different river. Um, tell us about the C section. It is a totally different river. Um, you're seeing almost no rainbows down on the sea. You see a lot more browns. Your fish size, I would say, goes up an inch or two on average, but you're seeing a lot fewer fish, and you're seeing more of the rough fish down there. You see some suckers and then the endangered fish as far as the pike minnow 
and uh, the humpback chubs. And we're also seeing quite a few northern pike down there, which are on the uh, catch and kill list. So if you do catch a pike down there, it's required that you kill it. And they came up from the Yampa River, something that the Utah Division of Wildlife has been battling the last few years. Um, on the sea, there are absolutely no rapids, really, really easy float. Um, there's a lot of put-ins and takeouts, and it's 15 miles. The last takeout of the sea section is called Swinging Bridge, and it's right across the Colorado border. A um, few things to watch out down there, the wind and lightning. One nice thing about the A and the B section is if there's a lightning storm with the canyons, you're going to be pretty safe. But down there on C, the, the weather is is real. And you get flash floods down there, which will turn the river brown or white, depending on where the floods are. It's definitely a cool float, but don't go down there expecting high numbers of fish. But if you once you get it dialed in, it can be a, a great, great fishery. I'd probably float down there more than probably most other guides on the river. And it's, I love getting down there. You rarely see another boat, but you have to be a, a little bit more skilled of an angler for sure. Wouldn't go down there with a never ever, somebody who'd never fished. And a lot of that is just, you're having to reach those casts out a little further. The fish aren't seeing as many boats. so They get a little bit more boat shy. And uh, like I was saying earlier with the wind and the weather, if you have any wind, you, you have to be able to cast to get it where you want it. Is that C-section um, a lot of streamers and a lot of big terrestrial type bugs or, or you know, what is like standard protocol? I mean, I, obviously it depends on what time of year, but it's kind of a more, for a lack of better term, it's kind of more, you know, you're throwing more junk down there, aren't you? And, and you know, thinking outside the box a little more than some of the standard stuff you'd throw on A and B. Um, yes and no. I think that's kind of the preconceived notion down there that if you're not throwing streamers, you're throwing big terrestrials and that's any time of the year. I definitely fish a little bit different down that, down there, or at least guide a little different. If you get in with the hatches down there and start timing them, there's some really, really amazing hatches. You definitely see a lot of caddis. And during the summer months, if you know, the stretches down there on where to put the caddis. I'm fishing a size 20 caddis when most guys are fishing like a size four hopper <laughs> and keeping up with them. If not, not out fishing them. And I think you're seeing a lot more of the bigger fish that kind of learn that, that that hopper bites back every now and then that they know not to eat the fat Albert anymore. And then the trico hatch down on sea is amazing. And it's a really short windowed hatch as far as time of day. You only have a couple hours to, to really get it dialed in. And there's only three or four spots down there where the hatch gets really, really thick. But, I mean, that's probably my favorite hatch of the year anywhere on the river. I mean, anybody or everybody kind of screams cicadas for the green, but the trichos on that lower river, that's probably where I see the most big fish every year is on a size 22 trico. And um, Colby, are you fishing a trico, fishing an adult on the surface, or are you fishing subsurface? Where, you know, for those that don't know, kind of explain what tricos are, and and um, the fish really get keyed in on it, and it, it's a lot more like a betas type feeding pattern yeah. where they really get lined out and just get real methodical and rhythmic, right? Yeah, but trico is a a mayfly, so your standard upwing fly, similar to your blue wing or 
if you're back used to hex or a, a quill. But uh, they're they're really really small. I mean, a, a twenty is a good sized one. When I'm fishing them, I'm fishing a size twenty two. Little short body on them and black. They come out and just I mean, their spinner fall is really really dense. And as far as what I'm meaning with a spinner fall, and that's where the name of our company comes from, is in their life cycle, the adult stage when they're laying the eggs is a spinner. And mayflies hatch in mass to escape predators and to increase reproduction success. And so they'll all mate at the same time, and in turn, they all die at the same time. And they'll die on the water in the thousands to millions, depending on the hatch. And you can find those feeding lines where the, these little teeny bugs are collecting. And I mean, the biggest trout in the river will key in on those feeding lines and just rhythmically eat these little, little teeny flies. And a lot of it is slowing down and watching. And I mean, it's, to me, it's hunting. It's not going out there and, and throwing your fly or your rig out in the middle and just hoping something eats it. You're, you're spotting these fish and stalking them. And, and finding the rhythms and patterning them like you would an elk or a deer. I, I think that's what separates the the guys who can be really successful down there versus the guys who go down there and say that they didn't see a fish all day. And it's just, I mean, learning the habits. It's just like hunting. Kobe, to go back to something you said too, and just for those people that are listening that um, might be new, um, what you're talking about when you're talking about a spinner you know, fishing a spinner, that's when if you're really closely looking at the water, you'll see the bugs and the, the wings will be somewhat translucent and the wings will be laying mm-hmm. flat out like if you were looking at an airplane from the top down where the wings just yeah. lay out. If you see uh, uh, bugs on top of the water with wings, uh, you know, erect or going up, that is the the that the the trico in its adult stage but it hasn't died yet and there's a huge difference there i want to ask you a question about what are some of the things that you noticed that they're taking spinners as opposed to the adult and it's a real in-depth question i know but just in kind of (laughs) general terms (laughs) like we could go on for four hours about this but what do you notice as far as the dimple pattern or the rise form when they're taking spinners that may be different when they're taking adult, say, blue-winged all, you know, betas off the surface? Mm-hmm. What is the difference in the take? Well, the difference in the take is on a spinner, that bug is right in the film. So water has a surface tension, and on a spinner, it's in the film. And you'll see fish rising and you can look at the water and it doesn't look like there's anything there because those bugs are flat on the water and right in that film. So they don't, they don't have to break the surface as much. You're not going to see that entire nose come up kind of like you would if you were thinking of a, a grasshopper eat or, or a dunny, like you were saying. So it's a lot subtler eat. And that was kind of back to what I was getting as far as stalking and hunting and slowing down and, and studying the water because you can have a fish that's over 20 inches and when it comes up to eat that spinner, it just looks like a drop of water almost hit the surface. There's just a little little dimple on the surface, and that fish is coming up. And a lot of times it won't even break the surface of the water, and it opens its mouth and just kind of sucks that bug under. Is that 
That's a great, a great explanation. And, and for those listening also, in other words, they can sit in one feeding lie and because of what you said where the, the trichos, you know, they, they mate at the same time, they die at the mm-hmm. same time. In other words, what those big fish have learned is that they're all going to die at the same time. Yeah. They're all going to be on the water. And so, in other words, that fish can sit there and and not expend any energy and sit there and rise exactly. over and over and over and basically fill their stomach uh, yeah. in, in in a very short period of time and ex- expend hardly any energy at all, whereas you know chasing grasshoppers that are flittering all over the top of the water yeah. or a cicada where they might have to move five six feet out to go get something, they tend to just sit in one lie and literally just raise up and down, raise up and down. Yeah. Right? Trout trout are really really lazy, and the bigger they get, unless they get very, very carnivorous. The bigger they get, the lazier they get. So, I mean, when we're fishing these trico hatches, the big fish will be there day after day, year after year, in the exact same spot. And with a client, I can know a lot of times within inches if that fish will move an inch or two to eat the fly or not. And so it's it's setting up and planning. And where you, you know that big boy is, you set up really really far in advance and you run that fly right into him within inches because you know he's going to be there it's like you were saying he's not going to move to eat a tiny tiny bug but if you put it over his nose he's going to eat it right and and like you said i mean some of the some of the biggest fish of the year get caught on those spinner falls you know but you also have you know speak to the um, like the the PMD, do you not also get a spinner, you know, a rusty spinner, and and the fish also key in on the PMD that has finally died, and it's a, you know the rusty spinner, which is oh yeah, a PMD. No, so all of your mayfly hatches from your PMDs, your so which is a pale morning done, it's a a bigger sized mayfly, kind of yellow in body, as an adult. And to your blue wings, I mean, everything's going to have our, our spinner fall. And so it's just a matter of, of timing it. Certain hatches that fall will last an hour or two to with like the PMDs where you have, in my opinion, a good 15-minute window on a certain stretch of water. So if you're there at that right time and that the water is just covered in bugs, every fish is up. And they know that they've got that window to feed hard and heavy and they'll gorge. And once they stop seeing those bugs and once they're losing that window, it'll happen every day for that, that time frame of the hatch that they'll be up and every fish in the river will be eating. It, it can be frustrating. Um, and I'm sure you had to learn this too, the hard way, just like everybody else has. But now that you are dialed in and you know, you know your river very well and you know your fish, you know your insects, you know those timing and what have you. But how many times have you been guiding and your guys are absolutely just crushing fish, just, I mean, one after another. And, a guy, you know, boats will be going by and they're fishing an adult, you know, with wings upright, so to speak, for people yeah. listening that, you know, aren't. aren't really experienced and they're not catching a single fish meanwhile you guys are fishing the spinner 
that's one of the things with fly fishing that intrigues me so much is that on on some hand on some times it can be you know just unbelievable catching and then sometimes it can be just unbelievable frustration and what you don't what you don't realize is that there's so much to it um the, the the details in essence are what draw me to the sport of you know you can you can think you know a lot but until you know all the little intricate parts and why the fish are doing what they're doing you can look like the biggest you know you can literally have a zero fish day yeah. and look over and, and and someone a guide or an experienced fisherman is literally over there you know doubling up on fish with two cl- i mean it's just crazy yeah i've been on i've been on both ends of that spectrum <laughs> when you're on the wrong one and i mean i i spend a lot of days on my river and I'll have days where I feel like I know what I'm doing and can't get them. And I see guys that are coming down in a drift boat who obviously don't spend a lot of time in a drift boat. They're having a hard time rowing and they don't look like accomplished anglers, but they can outfish me. I mean, there's certain days where when you, like you said, you just get it dialed and you've got the right bug and it's amazing what a little bit of a size difference will do or a little bit of a color shift will do. If they're focused on a size 18 versus a size 16, that's that's all the difference in the world that day. Some days it doesn't matter, and you could catch them on anything. As long as your fly's wet, you're going to get them. And I think that's what makes our cicada hatch so enjoyable is that, I mean, if you get that bug out there and it's it's on the water for five or six seconds, there's there's certain days of the year where anything will get eaten. Yeah, you all got to hang on. Up. Yeah. Yeah. You have you, have you timed the, the worst caster? You, yeah, I, I've I've seen it a couple times. Um, I've never seen it where it was just you know all day long just unbelievable. But I have seen you know bits and pieces of just unbelievable fishing. Mm-hmm. And and you know what's funny to me about the cicada hatch is sometimes the worst the the guy in your boat that casts the worst oh, yeah. sometimes he's catching more on the cicada because he's just slapping it on the water and and the fish you know i've seen it where I, I i tend to go up there you know a couple times a year mostly always in the summer and take my raft up there and i have a couple old guys i shouldn't say that they're going to be pissed if they listen <laughs> to the cast some older guys um, you know, 60s, 70s guys that I just love my, you know, some of my best friends that are just, you know, retired guys and they just love to fish. And we go up there and we have caught the cicada, um, hatch at times, uh, where it was pretty darn good, where, you know, you pretty much just get it anywhere out there and, and you're going to have some unbelievable hookups. But then I've also seen it where it's sporadic and, you know, that's where, you know, I have so much to learn. And that's one thing that intrigues me, like I said, about fly fishing is that, you know, maybe you're at the tail end of the cicada and the fish have gotten real picky and they've kind of seen everything. And now, now all of a sudden you have to have, you know, either exactly the right bug or being in the right spot. And there's just so much to it that draws me to the sport of fly fishing. Um, I want to back up for just a second. Mm -hmm. We're kind of coming out of what we would call of winter fishing there on the green river it, it briefly tell me about how the fishing on the green river is in the winter and then the period of time that we're moving into now which i'm sure you're excited about 
Um, but kind of tell me how the fishery kind of transitions from that winter fishing and some of the bugs and flies and such that you guys are using to now as it's, you know, kind of warming up and, and, and how that's going to progress and, and okay. just kind of walk through that. Well, I think that the green is a very, very underrated winter fishery. As far as float fishing all through the winter, it fishes pretty good with a streamer all year. You can have days where they're, they're just crushing it with that streamer in the middle of the winter. And then even in July and February, if you can get a day that gets a little bit of sun and you can get a little bit lower wind, you get really, really good midge hatches. And we'll have thick, thick midge hatches all through the winter. So through the winter, if you're not throwing a big streamer or a midge, you're pretty much SOL unless you're nymphing. And the nymph game through the winter can be really good from worms to eggs, just your, your normal winter fishing. But as you're saying, the transition into spring, once that warm water starts to warm up a little bit, we get a little bit longer days, we start seeing the blue wings, and that's what's just about to happen. Um, normally, it's the 1st of April. They get really, really thick. And that's one of the hatches that the green is just infamous for is the blue wing hatch and have guys that say you could walk across the water on the backs of bugs and not get your feet wet. And that should be happening any day now. I've seen some, uh, some good days in the last week where we've gotten really, really good hatches. The tricky thing this year is going to be our snowpack. We have a lot of, lot of water up in Wyoming. We're sitting at almost 200% of our normal water. So right now we're sitting at 4,600 CFS, so cubic feet per second which is a really, really big flow for us. That's normally pretty close to our, our peak um, runoff flow. And we'll be at 46 until April 1st. And the 1st of April, we're going to go up to 66. And we'll hold at 66 until they do that peak flow at 9,200, I think, this year. So the blue wing fishing is going to be a little bit different than normal. Normally, the blue wings is a really accessible hatch. You can go down to Little Hole and hike up and pick your spot or wait across, depending on the year, and just light it up. This year with the high water, the wade fishing is going to be difficult. You're definitely not going to be able to cross the river anywhere at this flow or higher. And a lot of the, the normal typical lanes that the wade fishermen use are going to be gone. So there's going to be a lot of exploration for the, the wade fishermen this year. It's definitely going to be a, a tricky one with the blue wings. But one thing about the blue wings is they absolutely love water with a high oxygen content and the high water is going to provide that. It should be a really, really successful, prolific hatch this year. It's just going to be a matter of finding out where those fish have set up in their feeding lanes and uh, being able to access them, whether from a boat or waiting. I think it's going to be pretty tricky from a boat too. Because then how we were talking earlier with fish being lazy the same thing with split hatch. They're going to get in a spot that they require the least amount of work to hold in the water while just having the most amount of bugs wash over them. So you'll go through a stretch of water where you're not seeing any fish and you'll come around the corner and it'll look like the water's boiling because there's so many fish rising. And one question, let's, let's start here. Um, you say blue winged olive, um, mm -hmm. and, and the, the technical or the, the actual bug is a betis, which is a, a mayfly, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So a lot of people will say betis for any blueing, 
but Betis is actually just your blooming herbs. That the taxonomy of mayflies is crazy. There's like 4,000 different mayflies. They all kind of get clumped as Betis when they're Betids. And then, you know, when you start talking to the entomology guys, they get all sorts of worked up over it. But it's pretty much any grayish, small mayfly kind of goes by the name of a betis or a blue wing. So the guys back east would probably call them a gray quill. Okay, and, and the way to identify that, so if, if people are walking the rivers in the springtime, that's the, mm-hmm. the bug with a, a kind of a translucent, pretty big wing compared to the size yeah. of the body, and, and they have a blue appearance, kind of a pale kind of blue appearance in the wing. And one yeah. thing that you can see is when they're floating on the surface as an adult, they look like little sailboats. And Just and like you, little sailboats. If you get in an area of water where it's a little bit calmer, you can actually get down kind of water level and look, and you'll see these little sailboats going by, and those are what we're talking about as blue-winged mm-hmm. or betis. And you point out that, you know, there's seven million different kinds of you know <laughs> betas but in, in general when you see the little sailboats in the spring most anywhere in any western water it's going to be a you know what guys are calling blue winged olive um mm-hmm. colby can you kind of take us through um the the stages of a mayfly specifically the stages of that blue winged or that betas yeah so you'll start out with an egg and that egg will be laid on the surface or a couple species where the female actually will dive under and lay her eggs on the rock. But that's And the egg will settle down and it goes down the stream a little bit and gets down in the rocks. And depending on the species, it's a couple days to a month and a half. And that egg will hatch and they'll come out as what we call nymphs. And if you've been out walking around in streams and kicking over rocks, you see little, like, I mean, almost dragon-looking bugs, cylindrical body with six legs and antennas and long tail crawling around on the bottom. Those are your, your mayflies. Um, a lot of people will call them crawlers. And depending on the species, it can be a short life cycle up to a couple years. And then they'll... and So the most part of their life is actually what you'd call a juvenile, your nymph, where they're living underwater. They're eating moss, algae, wood debris, and then they'll hatch, or they'll start to hatch, and they'll come up through the water column. And to come up through that water column, they'll create a little air bubble on their back or under their gill plate. And that's definitely one thing when you're tying your flies or you're selecting your flies, that little bit of an air bubble gets a shimmer to it. So when you're using like that silver tungsten bead or a bug with your flashback on it, that's what's going on there. A lot of people think that it's just an attractor or something to catch the fish's eye but it's really is imitating part of that life cycle without bugs coming up out of the water column and they'll shed or like a a lizard and they'll shed their skin and they'll crawl up the surface you have your done that adult cycle that wings will dry and go up in that um sailboat shape and from there they'll fly out into the the willows or cottonwoods and they'll molt again that's called an instar and and mayfly then they'll come back out after that one last molting and mate and lay their eggs into that spinner and so when earlier when we were talking about the sailboat wings on the water 
when they're on the water there, they're actually above the water surface. So the only thing on the water is their legs and maybe a little bit of their abdomen. And then, so when you're seeing that, you'll see a lot of fish rising and they won't be eating those bugs. What they're actually eating are the bugs that are coming out and emerging right then. And so you'll want to fish your emerger patterns or your cripple patterns there. The actual adult pattern, I think, is probably the most overused pattern there is. It's the one that you can see the best, but I think it's the one that the fish are not eating the most. Okay, let me stop you right there. Sorry, that was very long and rambling. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think it, it was fantastic. I just want to stop you to make a point and, and point out what you're talking about, where what you're saying is when you see those sailboats on the surface and you're fishing, let's just call it your own sailboat, you're fishing an ad- mm-hmm. adult, you're fishing a dun, a blue-winged olive dun yeah, so or betas be your... dun. Parachute atoms or parachute atoms, tackles, tackle, yeah, right. And you're not catching fish. What you're saying is more than likely the fish are keying in on that they're they are gonna like we talked about earlier expend as little energy as possible and be able to take the bugs in their most vulnerable stage. So Mm -hmm. where they can readily feed and take those bugs the easiest that's how they're going to feed the most you'll still you'll have some fish taken adults Mm -hmm. but when a hatch first starts and into the hatch the fish actually key in on what's called the emerger or from that Mm -hmm. cycle when you said the nymph is on the bottom on the rocks and then the little air bubble and then he actually emerges which is going up through the water column so picture the water flowing and he's actually kind of free floating and he's floating his way up to the surface that creates a variable and correct me at any any point through here if i'm wrong it creates a situation where that that insect is very very vulnerable because they're in essence just free floating with the air pack air you know the the air bubble and and trout can there's no defense they just the, the bugs are basically sitting ducks in the water and the fish key in on that emerging uh, insect, yep. and there might be thousands of adults going over the fish, but there's, um, they don't have to actually rise up. They can basically sit in the water column and just open their mouth and close their mouth. Yeah. And For everyone you see on the surface, there's going to be ten moving up to the surface. Right. So, what do you do? Now we're kind of talking more of a tactical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me like time of day, and I know it it varies throughout the hatch and what have you, but kind of as you transition, let's and, and, and let's say you have a client or let's say you just want to go out and say, Jay, I want to show you what I'm talking about. I want to catch the most fish that I can. This is how I'm going to do it. How do you work through that hatch and, and kind of from a tactical and, and gear standpoint and your setup? So pre-hatch, you're more than likely going to be nymphing. You'd have your beta nymphs on there, so your pheasant tails, your um, real mills, or your Frenchie. You're going to be fishing with your nymphs, and most of them are going to be weighted. You're going to have that tungsten bead on there that I was talking about earlier. And you're going to be fishing close to the bottom and you're, you're imitating any of those nymphs that have fallen off of that rock, gotten dislodged. And at that point in their life cycle, they're actually really, really strong swimmers. They can navigate the water, get back out of the current and under rocks pretty well. So 
any fish that you're going to catch there is just going to kind of be an opportunistic fish, somebody who's sitting just outside of that current and might see something wash by. But as you start to see a nose here or there, or you start to see a bug start flowing by, right then, as quick as you start seeing that, you're going to want to switch off your bottom nymph to an emerger pattern, something that's a little more weightless that'll start kind of fluttering up and down that water column because at that point, those fish are going to start keying in on those bugs that are moving up and down in the water column. And that's something that's worth trying out as far as trying to make that bug, your, your rig, move up and down in the water column while keeping it tight, um, which is, is pretty tricky to do. There's a new style of fly fishing. It's, I guess it's not new. It's new to us Americans, but it's called Euro-nymphing or tight-line nymphing. And those guys, will you're not using an indicator. You're just using a tight line from your rod to your bottom fly. And a lot of those guys, when they get in that hatch and they're seeing fish, they'll pull their flies up out of the water to imitate that bug moving through the water column. And it's, it's deadly. And that's why a lot of people will pick up fish too on a swing. So after you've done your, your drift and at the end of your drift, you let it swing out your flies there going from your deepest part up to the surface. And that's going to instigate a lot of strikes there too. And so as we're going through, stop you right there real fast. No, it's great stuff. I want to stop you right there just to be, just to point a couple things out. So what you're saying is with the Euro nymphing, you're, you're doing a much shorter cast and you have a lot more, um, your line is basically tight from the, you know, through your guides, from the tip of your rod down to, you know, the line goes down to the water and it's almost a straight mm-hmm. line. And yeah. in essence, you're almost manipulating where you hear dead drift and all of that, but you're almost tight lining and you're almost, so you forward cast and almost say, you know, a rod length of line, so to speak. And then you're almost just following and feeling that fly basically bouncing along the bottom and in that water column and are you telling me that guys are casting forward and then as it's coming by them obviously you raise your rod tip up a little bit and are they actually at that point lifting it up in the column or are they then as it goes by them lowering the rod and then at the end of the drift, before you recast, what you're saying is you just slowly lift the rod and that brings the flies that are down at the bottom up in the water column and those fish will think that that's an emerging insect? Exactly. And it's both of them on how you were saying raise the rod and keep raising. A lot of guys at times will just pull those flies all the way out of the water right as they're crossing them or if they're seeing a feeding fish. They're actually targeting that one fish and raising it in front of them. Most of the time, back end, after you've raised your rod, dropped it, and you're, you're just keeping that rig tight, it's coming towards you in a way, and you're just letting it swing up and out. And at that whole tight line, you're never, you're never really getting a dead drift, a, a dragless drift. You're, you're almost pulling it through the current, right. and everything there is... You're feeling every little tick, every every time a fly touches a rock or a fish eats it. You might not have as many fish eat your fly, but every fish that eats it, you should fill it and get a shot at setting. Because when you're running your, your indicator setup 
I've heard of studies where guys have gone down and dove and watched your flies underwater. And they're saying that 25% of the fish that eat your fly, it's translating that to the indicator. So three out of every four fish that eat your fly, spit it out, moving the indicator. So that's kind of where the, the tight line nymphing has come from, was people realizing that they're missing the vast majority of their fish without any fault of their own. So, so in other words, fish fly fishermen have been taught for so many years about drag free and what you know natural drifts. Mm-hmm. But what the Euro nymphing guys have figured out that if you keep more of a tight line, that in essence you don't even need an indicator because any time that that line you're watching your line and you're kind of in essence pulling yeah. it about the same speed as the current, not faster or slower, but just kind of pulling it along that any little tick or if that line stops, it's either one caught in a little rock and stopped or it's in a fish's mouth. And so what you're saying is the sensitivity of the strike can be felt a lot easier than if you're just watching an indicator that has say one and a half times, you know, from the indicator down to the bottom of, you know, kind of line floating around and 25% of those strikes you you only feel you only feel 25 or the indicator yeah. only moves 25 percent exactly. of the time because most of the time when that indicator is moving you're not seeing the fish eat it you're seeing the fish try to spit it out by the time that's translated that fish is already doing whatever it can to spit that fly out and you have to think that fish eating your fly whether it's a fly without any weight or just the weight of the hook i mean a nymph is virtually weightless, and in the water column it is. Your hook's not, so when he feels that weight in his mouth, he knows it's wrong. He's trying to get that out of there as quick as possible. So they're they're getting that in and out really, really fast. They don't they don't want to be hooked. And have you found with your own fishing or fishing with clients, um, I mean, do you find yourself doing this Euro nymphing, you know, tight line nymphing way more than you have been? I mean, is it something that you've implemented fishing with your own clients? It's not something I do with clients often because it's a little bit tougher to do from the drift boat. You're, it, it shines when you're wade fishing. And 95% of my trips, I'm, I'm in the boat. But it's definitely something worth trying the next time you're out. And there's a lot of information out right now on it. It's it's becoming really, really popular. I'm and, sure and any of the local Trout and Limited clubs will have a presentation once a year on it. And don't you think also it's 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 definitely a presentation where literally at the bottom end of your drift, like we were talking before, I mean, if if you kind of get in those good feeding lanes, like you can catch I mean, when it's when it's on, I've seen it where at the bottom end of your drift, if you do it just right, and when it gets to the bottom, you just slowly start raising your rod. Yeah. And I mean, you basically just hold on because they're just going to hammer <laughs> it. But I mean, I've seen it where you can literally catch a fish on every single cast at the bottom end of your drift. Like it's it it can be crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you're in a healthy river where they're in there and you're on that spot where those fish have all stacked up to feed on the hatch, it's it's the most effective way of getting them. And I mean, the reason that it all started was, I mean, when we're calling it European nymphing, it was the Europeans developed it. And most of the water over there has a really, really low fish count. So those guys have gone out and figured out the most effective ways of getting them because they might have 
a mile where there's only 20 fish. So they're going to do whatever they can to, to pick those fish out. And sure. it's just and translated to crazy yeah. success over here where we're seeing thousands and thousands of fish per mile. That's very good stuff. Okay, so also from a tactical standpoint, we're talking about fishing the blue-wing doll over the Betis hatch, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the Green River, but pretty much all over the western U.S., you know, you've got blue-winged olives. Blue-winged yeah. olives are notorious for spring. They're notorious for cloudy days. Um, you know, mm-hmm. more prolific hatches on cloudy days than sunny days. Um, uh, do you also fish, say, a parachute Adams adult, and then your bottom fly off of that? Do you fish an RS2 or some sort of a merc? Yeah, when do you, when do you go from like the 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 double nymph pattern to the emerger pattern to maybe a dry and a dropper, and then when do you go to just fishing a dry? So that was like in our our walking you through the day. I got sidetracked again. Sorry. We no, said you'd go great. to that. Keep it up. Yeah, it's great stuff. <laughs> that emerger pattern on your nymph rig. And there's going to be a certain point where you just start seeing fish up everywhere. And most fly fishermen prefer to get them on the dry. So when you're seeing fish up everywhere, it's get get switched out, switch rods, or switch that rig over to your dry fly rig. And right there, you're going to want to put on your emerger pattern. Most emergers are pretty tricky to see. So unless you have good eyesight or you're really on your game, the easiest way to do it is to run a, a double dry or a, a dry dropper setup where you've got your first fly is something you can see, whether it's a, a hopper, if you need something big to see, or you can go down to like your parachute atoms where you're imitating that actual adult mayfly. And then you put your cripple or your emerger. And the cripple is something we haven't talked about before. A cripple is a pattern that's imitating a fish that, or a, sorry, a fly that has come up to the surface and has started to shed that shuck, its its skin, but either a leg or a wing has got stuck in that shuck. And that's probably the most, I mean, it's obviously the most vulnerable position for that bug to be in. So those fish will key in on it. They know that it can't swim away. So having a cripple back behind your your adult is pretty much the way to go. And a lot of times you're going to see that fish come up and eat your dropper and you'll set or he'll eat it and then pull your other fly down and you're just using your second fly as an indicator. Typically in that situation, when you're fishing a cripple, what is the distance from the dry, you know, the adult to the cripple? A lot of that will depend on your clarity of water and your speed of water. And it's just something to play around with. I'll go from anywhere from two feet to, I mean, four or five inches. If you're fishing really, really small flies in really still water, you can go really short. And that will suspend your emerger in that layer where those fish are uh, feeding in the scum. And that translation to your indicator. So... I, I might have lost you there for a second. Um, the slower the water, the closer. I shorten it up more. Okay, mm-hmm. so the slower the water, you shorten it up. And is that because um, in the faster water, I, I'm trying to. So in your I, faster water, it's going to be pulling it, and that'll swing your emerger up into the, the higher water column where they're going to be emerging or crippled. 
right there an inch or two, but in that slower water, if you were to have say 18 inches and it sat there and you're fishing it, that second fly is going to be down below your fish. Too deep. So you can shorten it up just a couple inches and you're right there in that feeding lane. Got it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people miss out on. They they look at a, a rig with just a couple inches behind it and they think that it won't work, but pick up a lot of fish that way. That's one that I do a lot with an ant too, as opposed to fishing an adult fly, I'll put an ant pattern on as that top one. It's a little easier to see and fish love ants. Ants are prolific. They're on every river. And a lot of your ant patterns will, will hold up pretty much any of your dropper fly. Cause if you're trying to fish that mayfly on both flies, your adult mayfly doesn't have any foam. It's, it's usually all a natural fibered fly. So your, your hair or your feathers and it's not as, as buoyant to hold up a second fly. Colby, when you're, when you're, um, monitoring fish and watching fish, you know, obviously you do a lot of studying of your fish. When you see their nose breaking the surface, what does that tell you? And when you see their dorsal fin, you know, like a porpoising, what does, what do those two different rises tell you about what those fish are doing? So that's one that there's, there's some debate within the community of you can tell a fish that's eating an emerger versus a cripple or an adult by how it's rising. And a lot of times I think it's telling you the size of the fish. My main thing that I tell people when they, they're seeing a rise like that, and especially if it's in water where you're not surrounded by other people, is just to stop and slow down and even sit down and sit and watch that fish rise a handful of times. Try to get his rhythm and his style of rising. If you're seeing that fish come up and you're never seeing his nose, you're just seeing the tail every now and then, that is an indication that fish is eating just below the surface. He's coming up, hitting his point, maybe two inches below, and then turning and going back down. So you're just seeing the tail or the dorsal fin. You're not seeing his nose. So, so in other words, the yeah. apex, the apex, like he never breaks the surface, but because he's going up, taking something doesn't. a couple, yeah, his mouth doesn't, a couple inches under, he's already eating open mouth, closed mouth, and then he's diving back down. And you're seeing yeah. like the dorsal fin or his, or, um, his either tail fin or his dorsal fin. And so mm-hmm. he's never, he's never cleared the surface with his never mouth. Never breaking the surface. Yeah. So, so, so when case, you see that, you're saying, okay, okay. That's your cripple or your emerger. Okay. Cause he's not breaking the surface. He's not going to eat that adult fly. He's eating that one that's hatching or that's kind of stirred up below the surface. So that's where you want that, that dropper fly or your, your emerger. And that's your tricky fly to see. Okay. And the one and, thing to watch on that, and this is, I mean, I think one of the most critical things that most people mess up is I think the vast majority of fish, when there's a lot of food and there's a good hatch going on, they're going to have a rhythm where they'll rise every two seconds, every five seconds to maybe every 30 seconds. And if you've got a lot of fish, you can pick your one fish out you want and work on that rhythm because you could have the absolute perfect cast and perfect drift. But if you catch him when he's on his way down or kind of off that rhythm, he's not going to come up and eat. 
to slow down and kind of count that rhythm, pattern that fish. I mean, it's definitely not like a, a deer where you're patterning this movement through the day, but you're patterning that eat, and it will greatly, greatly improve your success as opposed to throwing 10 casts over them and maybe getting the right drift on that right pattern, the right timing, wait and try to hit them on that timing every time. And you have a lot less chance of spooking the one that you want. It also helps if you have a spotter that can kind of be it telling does. you, yes, that's your fish. Yes, that's your fish. And you kind of get in a, in a rhythm. Do, is there any, this is kind of off the, the beaten path question, but is there any um, similarity as far as what's my question? The pattern of a fish or the rhythm of a fish, does it have anything to do with the size? Like, do you see big fish in a slower pattern? Do you see, you know, small fish in a much faster pattern? Have you noticed any, any correlation there? I think a lot of that might be in my head, but I do want to say that a larger fish has a slower pattern, but I think that might just be because it's raising the anticipation a little bit more. And so you're thinking that he should be rising more and you're just getting antsy. But I mean, when you, you think of the size of a fish, a smaller fish is going to be able to get up quicker, make that pattern happen more quickly than a larger fish. But I think that a lot of that is just your your anticipation and wanting to come up more than he actually is a slower pattern. I mean, that beast isn't going to be waiting 45 seconds every time just because he's 24 inches. Right. If that makes sense. Okay. But earlier when you were talking about having a spotter, yeah, that's a style of fishing that I absolutely love doing. If you can get a buddy that you trust and you can work together, I think you can catch way more fish as a partnership and have somebody up on the hill and you kind of family fish it, you take turns and it'll greatly, greatly improve your success because a lot of times you're seeing a fish eat and you're making that cast. And you're actually a little bit behind where you really want to be. That fish isn't seeing right above him. He's seeing a couple feet in front. So you want that cast to be a little bit further out in front. And when you have somebody up on the hill above you, it, that helps you see that. And I think that that's one thing that helps people become a lot better anglers quickly too, is actually watching somebody fish. So it, and, it's helping you on both ends. Don't you also think though, just like having a good hunting buddy, it's kind of, you know, if you have someone that's spotting for you, that is not really honed into if you're trying to catch particular fish and one thing i really like doing is regardless of size like there's sometimes when we just say hey there's a fish do you see the rock do you see this do you see like we want to catch that fish and it it's kind of like goes back to i've talked about on the podcast before having a good hunting partner like no matter what's going on, you're focused on that fish. Like yeah. he, he's not up there looking for other fish. He's not up there being preoccupied. It's like, <laughs> we're going to fish for that fish until we catch that fish. And then we'll move on to whatever else. The worst thing you can have is a spotter up on the rock. And you're like, what's going on? He's like, hang on. I'm looking at another fish. You're like, let's, <laughs> let's catch this fish yeah. um, and then move on. I mean, but it, it, it's fun. Um, it can be extremely frustrating as a spotter 
when you're spotting for a friend and you know you like anything you have to have extremely good communication and yeah. on both sides you have to have a lot of patience as well because the spotter is seeing the fish and it's like come on you get put the fly there like but then the guys down there he might be dealing with the wind that's blowing mm -hmm. up or down riverside and he's you know it's a challenging cast so i would say on get your feedback on this but on both sides like you have to kind of have that cordial relationship where it's like exactly. you're gonna sit there and be as patient because you know that the you know the caster may be facing all sorts of his own challenges um and it, it it's so much more enjoyable when the spotter is really patient and the you know it's just like and then they find you finally catch that fish that you've both been after and you know get exactly. to enjoy a picture or something and um, but it can also work. I've seen it where I've seen husband wives where, you know, <laughs> the, the, the wife is cast in the husband's end and then he gets frustrated. And I've been in the same situation where it's like, come on, put the fly there. And, you know, then I get out in the water and she's like, see that, you know, uh, that, um, upstream or the, you know, the, the downstream wind or upstream wind yeah. isn't as easy as it looks. Well, one thing you have to remember is a spotter. You're not a coach. You're kind of a teammate. Right. And you're using that time, too, for you to learn. Watch that fish and try to see what's going on. Try to see why your buddy may or may not be being successful at this time. If you're up there and you're just telling them what to do, it's, it's not, you're not using that as a learning opportunity for yourself. That's you're not a great kind point. of seeing what that fish is doing because it's not a coach relationship. It is a teammate relationship. Same thing as hunting. Yeah, you're, that, you're part that's of the a team. great point. That is a great point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's talk about blue-winged olives and why, um, I mean, I guess the why is kind of a funny question, but why on cloudy days, why, why the first couple weeks of April, the end of March, when you see forecasts of, you know, uh, cloudy days, do you just smile? You know, the, the blue-wings love those cloudy days. And I, I couldn't tell you what it is about their biology that it triggers the bigger hatches. But if you've had a week or two of sun, bright, sunny days, you're going to see some bugs and they're going to be hatching, but you're not going to get those blanket prolific hatches. And that first overcast day, that's the day you want to be there. I mean, it's, I've had some of the best bluing days and just crazy snowstorms. Like the, the thing that you want is like those big fluffy snowflakes. And I think that that helps the fishing too, because it kind of disturbs the surface. Those fish can't see you as much, but those bugs are there. They're going to eat them. So, I mean, those, those cloudy days for whatever reason, that's when those bugs love to hatch. And that first day or two after a week of sun is when you're going to see the absolute just blanket hatches where you'll go into the back eddy and you can't see the water. And it's just that mat of gray blue. And that's, those are the ones you want to be there. I, I've even seen it. I've been frustrated before, even like on, you know, kind of my home river where I fish the most in the summer, the Roaring Fork in Colorado. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, I've seen it before on low water years where June, you know, the runoffs already happen and we're fishing and it'll cloud up. And all of a sudden you, I'm like, what we're using is just it's not working and then i start and then i slow down and i pull over and i start looking at the water i'm like 
the stinking blue wings. Blue wings, the, the, yeah. It's a blue winged hatch, and I don't even notice it because, you know, I'm fishing a big bug, you know, maybe a big caddis or something, and then you got to watch that. And I'm just curious on the green. I mean, do you get that where sometimes even after the, you know, the typical spring blue winged hatches, you get a cloudy day? I mean, they it, it can also happen, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, we see blue wings or, I mean, what we're calling blue wings, it's probably not the same scientific species but probably every month out of the year and on varying amounts of bugs. But I mean, they're, they're coming out maybe not every day, but you're seeing something once a week that's, you would call a blueing every month of the year. Sure. And it's just like you were saying, a matter of slowing down and, and paying attention. And a lot of the blueing species aren't just hatching the once a year. They'll, they'll have multiple generations per year. But one neat thing, and this was kind of one thing earlier when I was talking about life cycles of um, mayflies and talking about how their juvenile, their nymph stage of life is their longer stage. Most of your mayflies and your blue wings in particular, their mouth parts as an adult are vestigial organs and their dietary tract is filled with air. So as an adult, they're going to live two or three days and they won't even eat. They, as an adult, the only thing that they're doing is mating, which is just a really, really weird dynamic of how we're considering like a juvenile to an adult life cycle that mm-hmm. their adult life cycle, depending on the species, is three hours. And a long one might be a couple days. Wow. And they, they won't eat. They won't. You'll see if some bugs occasionally kind of hit the water, maybe taking a drink of water, but their, their stomachs are filled with air. It's just a really weird that is. cycle, yeah, that, that most people don't realize. It's that, just so foreign to us. Yeah, that's um, – so on the green, when you, you know, you'll say you have a cloudy day, first week in April, you know, prime conditions, you know, you see mm-hmm. the emergence, you see adults on the water, and you see the fish going crazy, that, that adult – on a on a blueing olive on the Green River, that adult's gonna fly off, right? He's he's sitting there. What they're doing is they're drying their wings. Before, exactly. You know they've gone from emergence and they're sitting there. And the reason they're not just flying off is their wings are wet. So they're trying to yeah. dry their wings, and that's when the fish yeah. really start keen in on the dry. But then my curiosity is, how long does it take that particular bug that hatched, say, at two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever? When does he become a spinner and come back and die? Is it that night or is it the next day? It will depend on the species. So a lot of the blue wings, it's that evening. With your trichos, it's the next day. Um, sometimes with the trichos, the males will hatch like before the sun comes up and the females are hatching like at 10 a.m. And then they're going to mate at like 5 in the afternoon and then they'll both die. With your blue wings, you're seeing that hatch usually around 10 to 2. Um, I usually will kind of consider it more between 11 and 1 is your thickest part. And then you'll see a spinner fall that evening a lot of times. If there's a day where there's no wind and they've been able to get out and dry and mate and, and do their whole life cycle in the, the course of a day. But it's, will, it's quick. Will the spinner fall? Okay, so on most western rivers, your guides guide from you know, 
sun up to, you know, two or three in the afternoon to, you know, depending mm-hmm. on the season, you know, eight, nine o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon. Is it pretty common on a place like the green where standard trips run, say, nine to four, that that you could actually get out there on the water and, and fish us a, a blue winged olive spinner fall in the evening and have kind of the river to yourself at times? No, that's that's a, a definite thing, especially on our river. I know that those fish know that most of the guides are running kind of banker's hours that from nine to five, they're safe. And we'll do a lot of floats where we'll meet again after we've dropped off one set of clients and do what we call a twilight float and float from like five o'clock till dark. And it's crazy. It's a whole different river. It's, I mean, different life cycles. You're seeing different bugs. And I think you're catching different fish in the same water. That fish are coming out of lies and moving into their feeding lanes at different times of day. And so you're seeing different fish in the same water at different times of the day. But yeah, as a, a guy coming up from Colorado or Salt Lake, I mean, in midsummer, you can go out in the evening and have the river to yourself, especially I've on a cooler that. day where you're not seeing the rafts. It's, it's amazing how if you get out of kind of the guide's hours, you, the river's yours. I think it's probably one mistake that a lot of people make when they come in and are floating on their own is that they're trying to do what the guides are doing. But a lot of the guides are doing what they're doing because it's, I mean, it is their job. Right. You're kind of doing that nine to five. And if you get outside of that, it, it can be amazing. If you put on right at sunlight and get out in front of everybody or sleep in and have a, a big breakfast and put on at noon, you're, you're not seeing the boats. And I'm pretty sure that's the same way on, on every major river in the West. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, it, 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 it just presents a whole nother opportunity and not that you can't fish. I mean, you know how it is on the green. You could have literally three boats that can basically cast and hit each other and everybody's hooked up. Everybody's catching mm-hmm. fish. Everybody's laughing and having a great time because there are a lot of fish per mile and, and, and it is an unbelievable river. Um, but there is something about either going way early, going middle day, going late. And I mm-hmm. tend to, you know, I tend to go way early in Colorado. I tend to just go way before, you know, basically as soon as the sun's come up, maybe we're throwing streamers for the first hour or two because nothing's going on. But um, I, I do love that about just being able to float. And even if we're not catching as many fish, it's it's fine. I, I, I kind of like to be fishing when there's not just, you know, people everywhere. But um, one question I would ask you is, during the time when the blue-winged olives are are going off, so to speak, the midges as well can still be really hatching um, thick. Mm-hmm. Ha- um, how do you kind of play that when, you know, because they can switch from, you know, really hot on midges to blue wings like that. How do you kind of make that transition to know when you should be switching from, you know, midges to blue wings? A lot of that is just having become familiar with your body of water. You know that at 10 o'clock you're going to be seeing a lot of midges. And it's funny, they'll switch off the midges before you are seeing the blue wings. And I think what's going on there is you're starting to see those bugs move up through the water column. And so those fish are keying in on those bugs that are now emerging, but you're not seeing it. So the key is just if, if it's been good, 
keep at it. And as soon as it changes, if you're fishing midges and you're not seeing noses anymore, it's time to, to switch up. If you know that blue wings are coming, get ahead of the game and get ready for it. And, yeah. and put those blue wings on and spend that time kind of in between the hatch getting re-rigged as opposed to waiting and now you're 15 minutes behind the hatch. Because it can mean everything. And a lot of times I like having multiple rods rigged up and yeah. so that as soon as I know, I just walk to the bank and switch my rod and I'm all ready to go and I'm boom, I'm right into it. Um, I, I kind of learned that from fishing tailwaters, you know, the, the San Juan and some of those rivers where having multiple rods and having the ability to just, I mean, quickly switch from one to the other and have your, cause you know, sometimes the rigs are totally different. Um, you know, that's helped me. I, I want to kind of, so springtime fishing, blue and gala fishing is phenomenal all across the West, but, uh, specifically mm-hmm. on the green, it can, I've, I've seen it. I haven't been there for the blue winged olive hatch in, in a few years, but I've been there before when it's just just insanely fun, um, just a great time uh, to, to be there. Um, I kind of want to ask you, moving forward, and once you get through the blue winged olive fishing um, on the green for many years, the, the, the next thing that you guys are kind of looking for is that cicada hatch. And... You know, last year was a real interesting year in that I went up there a couple times and it just never seemed to be very prolific. Of course, there was super high water and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what do you see moving forward with what you know about, you know, 200% of, you know, snowpack in Wyoming? How do you think that's going to affect the cicada fishing and, you know, it, it, other than the high water, are you anticipating a big cicada hatch? So the cicada hatch is one that, for me, is, is very, very frustrating. In certain areas, there's seven-year bugs and there's 14-year bugs and or there's a three-year bug. I don't really think there's a whole lot of that on the green. Um, from the old guys I've talked to, there are the cycles of it, but I think that it's more weather-based and moisture-based what can happen is you can get those cicadas that start to hatch and then you get a frost and it kills them all and so you're not seeing them and the key is kind of you have to have a prolific year the year before or the cycle before to have a good one that year it's like rabbits where they kind of do the, the boom and bust cycle but it's based more upon weather than predation you need a week or so of nice wet weather to get the ground loose and soft and then it to get really warm 80 degree days are where we start seeing the cicadas. But I think it was three years ago we were seeing cicadas come out in the snow so it had that kind of wet and then warm and then it snowed and they just went dormant. didn't go cold enough to kill them all and as soon as it warmed up it was great again. But like you were saying with last year, we were seeing a few cicadas here and there, but there was never enough of them to really get the fish to key in on them. And years that it has high water, I mean, we've had high water years with cicadas, and those fish will move all the way through that water column at 9,000 to eat the bug. I mean, if the bugs are there, the fish are going to eat them high water or not. It's just a matter of kind of being in the right place and, and knowing where to fish them. 
And that was one thing that earlier when we were talking about when you were saying with cicadas where you're seeing bugs and you're later in the, the, the cycle, they're coming up and rejecting them. One thing that a lot of people do is they'll fish a cicada close to the bank like you would a grasshopper. But a cicada is a, a flying bug, but they don't fly well. So they'll leave that ponderosa pine and try to cross the river. And they're just as likely to fall right in the middle of the river as they are six inches from the bank. Where a grasshopper, he's only going to jump a couple feet out. So the fish on the bank are accustomed to seeing them. With a cicada, kind of one of the old sayings on the green is trust the middle. And it's really funny having guys you know, get that boat and kick it sideways in the middle of the river and tell them to cast directly downstream and they're laughing mm-hmm. at you. Mm-hmm. And I think it way outfishes out there. And it's just that the fish aren't seeing as many imitations, but they're seeing just as many adults or as many naturals because that bug is just as likely to land right there as it is on the shore. That's a great tip. Um, I actually learned that the hard way. Um, some of the first years fishing that cicada hatch. And then I started watching what you guys were doing and you guys were doing the same thing. You kick the boat sideways, just like you said. And basically you're just you, the guide. You're just kind of keeping that boat in other words, perpendicular to the shore, mm-hmm. but you're, you're, you're kind of out in the middle of the river. And then you're, let's say your guy that's fishing closest to the bank, say going down river left he's kind of casting kind of middle or um, kind of quarter way out. And then the other guy is following right up behind him, you know, and so you're, you're three, four, five boat links out away from the bank. Oh yeah. I mean, dead center of the river. Yeah. And it was, um, it's amazing to, you don't think of fish sitting out there, but sometimes, um, I mean, it was, it was, a learning experience for me and when I started doing it it was like night and day um, and I just picked that up from watching the guides mm-hmm. sometimes I'll just sit and watch them fish from way up and I'll just watch them come by and watch you know how many hookups and I'll I can kind of see what they're doing um, and that was definitely one thing that I saw that you know it makes perfect sense now that I think about it that the cicadas fly and they're kind of sporadic, but they, they tend to make a pretty good push from the pine tree, and then they get about midway, and the wind knocks them down, and they fall smack dab right in the middle of the river. I mean, it makes yep. sense. Yeah. Like, and they have thing, a pretty I mean, good burst, like, to get away from the yeah. bank, but then they get about halfway in a, you know, current of wind, and they just dive bomb like a, yeah. you know, like a sinking ship. Yeah, I don't think that they can really fly all that well. I don't think that he could get down on the water and decide to go kind of back up it's almost more of a controlled glide they're just they're going wherever they can go and hope that they get to the tree they were trying to get to do you instruct your um guys to slap the cicada on the water and then vibrate it or do you like it just a complete just dead drift um so I, i hear people slapping it down with a big foam bug that just the weight of your cast is going to be enough noise on the water to where any of those fish that are going to give that instinctual strike will be there. The big slap, I think, is overrated. Every now and then, that little buzz or the twitch will definitely trigger the eat because they'll, when the, the naturals will land on the water, they'll, they'll wave their wings and try to fly away, and it does vibrate. And so on the water, if you're twitching that bug and it's looking like it's vibrating and maybe it's going to fly off, and 
that that fish is going to go and try to get it before it gets away. And you've got 10 boats in front of you who just ran a dead drift. And so you're just doing something just, just a little bit different. And that's all it takes is just being a little bit outside of the box sometimes. And there's guys that are out there fishing cicada patterns that are fluorescent pink and catching fish. And it's pretty cool that, I mean, just changing it up a little bit can trigger that strike. With what you said about um, usually on great cicada years, the year before had to be fairly prolific. With last year being, you know, from an outsider's perspective, kind of a dud as far as having a lot of cicadas around, does that kind of make you say that maybe this year probably not going to be on, you know, just very, very good? Or do you think that could easily change and have, you know, wet weather and then all of a sudden it really warms up and have a week worth of 80 degree days and it's just on like fire or what are your thoughts like what if you had to guess how's it going to be this year so one thing about last year is we were hearing a lot of bugs and seeing quite a few bugs but they weren't getting to the water for some reason and i don't know if they were a little bit higher up on the hill but we were hearing a lot of bugs at times last year so they were around it wasn't like it was a really really bust year so this year could be good. I think our, our big thing this year is going to be the high water. That definitely makes it trickier as far as it's harder to run the lines that you want and those fish are stacked up in a little bit different water with it being 10 times the normal flow, which our peak this year will be over 10 times our normal flow. That's going to be the critical factor if the cicadas come off a little bit later, more towards the end of June as opposed to that first week and our water's on its way down, it could be just absolutely phenomenal. So it's one of those that you never really know until it happens. That's a tough one with trying to book a trip of you're booking it a year in advance for a hatch that, <laughs> may or that may nobody, yeah, nobody can really tell you what it is. There's guys that say that they can, but I, I, I haven't found anybody I trust on it. If it happens, it happens, and it's it's what you want. It's good. Do you find, um, let's say, on good what what I would call good cicada years, where you know the fishing is is excellent and the fish are keyed in on them and such, do you f- sometimes find fishing a cricket or some other terrestrial generates just as many strikes, or are you one that thinks that if, you know, if they're keyed in on a cicada, you need to be matching that exact cicada as best you can? If they're keyed in on that cicada, I think you want to match it the best you can. As that hatch is starting and coming up to the peak, you want to match the size and the color to a T. And I think that tying your own bugs at that point gives you a little bit more an advantage to you're fishing the same fly as the shop is selling and everybody in front of you is fishing the same one having something that's a little bit different and matches a little bit closer to the natural hatch gives you an edge but on that i do think that a well-placed drift with no drag well exceeds a perfect fly fished poorly and then as your hatch is continuing on and those fish have seen a lot of cicadas and a lot of bugs. You're going to have a lot of fish that even with a natural on the water, you can throw a cicada out there and that fish will come up and look at it and refuse it and look at it and refuse it. And they, 
once they've been stung a few times, they get smart to the cicada. And at that point, what you were saying as far as fishing a cricket or a hopper is really, really a smart move there because they get, they get smart to that. They, they know that that cicada will get them. So. I'll tell you, um, a, a fly there that's kind of notorious for the green is that um, triple double, which oh, I believe is an is... Ant, ant pattern. And a couple, well, handful of years ago, four or five years ago, we were up there kind of during cicada time. And and I remember getting some of those um, uh, kind of purple colored triple doubles. Mm-hmm. And I got some black triple doubles and even some like amber or yellow triple yeah. doubles. And um I was actually getting where we were fishing a cicada and then fishing a triple double drop. Triple double behind that, yep. Oh my gosh! So that was, the triple double is a fly that was actually invented on the green. That was a is a Gordon Therup fly who's still a guide out there. So it was one that was created there. And I mean, it's if you were to give me one fly to fish on the river, and it could change size and colors, that would probably be it. Yeah, Gordon it, came up with a really really good fly there. Yeah, it was amazing how the fish would come look at the cicada and then they just move right over and take the triple double. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a fly that doesn't really look like anything. It kind of looks like an ant, but it's just buggy. It sits high on the water, has a lot of movement, and I don't it doesn't doesn't imitate one thing great, but it intimidates into everything well. Right. So it just fish fish love it. Really, really good bug. Okay. The only fallback of it is that it's hard to see. Yeah, it is. It is very hard to see, and I think that's the nature of having that much hackle. It's 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 yeah. got quite a bit of hackle on it, and it it's it's it is hard to see. Um, yeah, there's one that I tie up that we call a a quadruple double. That's a triple double with a little vis post and rubber legs. Mm. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah, it it, it works. Yeah, I've seen some of the patterns that you tie up in your cicada pattern I've seen on your Instagram account, which, by the way, if the listeners um, are, are listening and want to follow Colby, it's uh, Colby D. Crosland. That's C-O-L-B-Y-D um, Crosland, C-R-O-S-S-L-A-N-D. Um, he's got phenomenal stuff on, on his Instagram page and on his website as well. And he makes some really, really neat films. Um, Kobe, I want, we've got tons more to talk about, but we'll save it for another podcast. We've covered a lot of ground today. I kind of want to end and I'm kind of going to throw this one on you. Um, tell me a story you know, regardless of what time of year it was when there was a particular fish in the river that you knew about, you seen, you, you know, whatever, and you kept trying to catch that fish and you finally caught him, you know, and, you know, how big was it? And, you know, so I, I know every guide has those stories <laughs> where, you know, there's this, this one fish that, you know, your last eight clients have, you know, got them to come up, but, you know, either broke them off or couldn't get them landed. And, um, you know, whether a streamer, a dry or what, tell me, a, tell me a little fish story. Well, we've got, I've got my one that, and it was last year and it was back to the trico hatch. And there's just this one stretch of bank that the water looks a lot shallower than it is from the boat. When you're looking at it, it looks like it might be six inches deep. But when you get out in it, it's probably 18 inches deep. And there's one little bush that came out. And 
the, the first day we saw this fish, we had him patterned pretty well. We anchored up, up above him and watched and ran a trico down to him and perfect drift on him. And client set the hook a little bit too early and pulled it out of his mouth. And we rode back up and did the same thing. Exact same thing happened. Pulled the fly right out of his mouth. So let, let me get this straight though. You're anchoring and then you're floating by him and then you're, you're rowing back up and anchoring again. Yep. It, okay. So okay. it was, we'd anchor up and kind of get that rhythm that I was talking about watching yep. that fish and kind of know yep. his timing. Yep. You pull up anchor and float by him. And if you mess it up and you don't spook that fish, then you can row over to the other bank. And depending on the section of river, if you're not messing up anybody else, you can wow. row back up and get a right. couple more shots at him. And so he missed him the two times and spooked him the second time. The next day took somebody else down there and same time a, a fish was eaten in the same spot. This time he hooks him. Fish runs out to the middle and the day before I knew it was a good fish. Runs out to the middle. We do everything right. Client does everything right. Ends up breaking him off. And he, he was pretty bummed and it, it fought like a really, really good fish we ended up having a good day. Um, the next couple days, I was fishing another section of the river and got back down to the, the same section that we were at. And there's a fish rising in the same spot again. And uh, we we got him hooked and landed. And that fit the fly from the previous two days before was in his cheek. <laughs> so it, it was for sure that fish from, from the guy a couple days before. And we landed him, and I proceeded to catch that fish two or three more times through the year. And through photos and everything, you could tell it was the same fish, and he ended up being just a little bit over 22 inches. Oh, so it was wow. a really good fish. And, brown? Uh, brown? Yeah, but brown, and got him on a size 22. Oh, my So there's the, the infamous 2020 club, which is catching a 20-inch a fish on a size 20 fly. And these guys got the 22-22 the club, which I don't think there's many people out there who could say they've done that. That is pretty cool. Yeah. It's, and I would love to see that fish there again this year, and hopefully he'll be 23 or 24 this year. That that was a question I was going to ask you. I mean, uh, um, when just like a deer or an elk or anything else, there there's you know some deer, some elk that you know they're only going to be so big. Is that really the same with fish, or do fish tend to, if they get enough age on them, they're going to be giant, or are you know some fish going to be 24 26 inches or maybe the fish will never be over 20 inches even throughout his whole life's life cycle it's a little bit of both you're gonna have your limiting factors genetics in some case and other times your limiting factor is going to be forage so there's certain rivers where a fish no matter what the genetics will never reach his, his prime growth he won't ever get as big as he wants to i think most of it is actually people harvesting fish before they, they reach their prime and the same thing like deer and elk mm-hmm. to where just that fish is never going to reach his, his full, full potential before somebody takes him out or he was handled poorly and, and, and died. Yeah. And a lot of fish just die on their own after a hard spawn. They lose a lot of, a lot of energy during that spawn. And especially if people are fishing during the spawn, a lot of fish don't don't recover from that. But yeah, Good I think stuff. it's a combination of the two of, of genetics and just your forage if they can reach it in that environment. In in a given year on the green in all the sections like the fish of the year 
you know, as far as the biggest fish that that a client or you will catch in in one year period, I mean, what are we talking? Are we talking 22, 23 inches, or are we talking 25, 26? Like the the one 20, fish. I usually hit 23 every year. Um, I've only broke the, that 24 inch number on the A, B, and C. Uh, I think three times now. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of getting 22 isn't tough, but getting above 22 is a tough number. And that's a legit 22, you know, if you talk to some people, they catch, you know, six 22 inches in a day and go, yeah, it was just an okay day. And they're really, you know, 17 inch fish. Yep. And that's one thing that being in a drift boat gives you the advantage of, I have a tape measure built into my boat and I can wet it and set that fish and know the exact size versus when you're wade fishing to get a true measurement of a fish is pretty tough on a fish, let alone tough to do. So in a boat, you actually, you're knowing most of the time and you're not harming that fish trying to get a measurement versus throwing them up on the grass and drying them out to, to try to tape them. Are you a, so that's one, oh. are you a streamer junkie at all? Oh, I, I love throwing streamers and in the spring and, and late winter, that's, that's my go-to. It's, it's one of the funnest things. It's if tough you, to guide it because yeah. it's one of those things that you, you have to have a lot of faith. You're not out there doing it to catch a lot of fish. Most of the time you're there to try to get the one and the vast majority of your large fish are going to move away from eating your mayflies and they're going to, they're going to focus in on eating other fish. So that's where you're getting those big, adult, aggressive, kiped out fish. If you had to pick one streamer color, that's just, that's your go-to color, what is it? Ginger or tan. Ginger or tan. Yeah. And one thing that I love about fishing a light fly, and this is one that with dry flies, nymphs, streamers, if you tie it up, kind of a light color, natural tan, you can always carry a Sharpie and turn it olive or purple or black or orange. You can't go from black and turn it tan. Yeah. But you can go from tan and turn it black. I think that's one thing that every fly fisherman needs to keep either in their boat or their fly fishing vest is a couple Sharpies and a thing of super glue. That saved so many days for me. What's the super glue? You can, if you only have one of those flies left, you can do a little bit of repair. If you cut your fly line, you can use a super glue to repair your fly line strengthen your knot gotcha you can repair waders i mean it's just it's a good thing to carry with you okay great tip um do you also like fishing that that tan color because you can see it as you know as a guide rowing you can see your client you can see that little bit lighter bug and i mean if you're anything like me like seeing it happen a lot of times on the dark streamers i can't see them as i'm rowing near as well as i can see a and there's just something about seeing a big fish follow a oh, streamer cool and then it take it. Oh, it's it just, yeah. uh, I come unglued and when I'm rowing. You and see that fishing. flash of red and then the white oh. of its mouth and the fly disappear. And the crazy yeah. thing is there's a lot of fish that eat that streamer and you don't know it. And you yeah, set the hook because you see it. You don't yeah. feel it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, seeing that fly eat, or that fish eat the streamer is really, really, really neat. Yeah, it is really neat. Well... Well, this has been awesome. I want to give you a chance to tell the listeners how they can uh, get a hold of you, how they can book a trip with you. And um, I just enjoy following you on Instagram, and I look forward to getting up there this summer and 
and uh, maybe we can uh, uh, do some fishing, but uh, also go to dinner I would or something, love that. And, and that would be uh, fantastic. But yeah, tell the listeners how they can reach you. Yeah, Jay, the, the easiest way to reach us is info at spinnerfall.com. And our website there, spinnerfall.com, has our number, which is 877-811-3474. And that's 811-FISH. And then um, I totally have a lot of people reach out to me on Instagram and Facebook. I I check those every day or every couple days at the, the least. So, yeah, I mean, reach out anyway. Our, our website's probably the easiest. We have all the contact information there and other information that we didn't touch about on the podcast. We've got uh, river reports and calendars, links to lodging and everything, driving directions up to the river, where to camp. So. Awesome. That's, um, it's just a real special place to me. I love the, I love the green river and, uh, I really appreciate you spending uh, quality time with us here and I look forward to doing it again and look forward to fishing with you this summer and getting out there on the water and, and, um, it's fun. I've seen you many days where I've been on the river and it's, I always look over and you know that I believe your boat's the one with the brown trout on it. And, yeah, I have a, uh, a pretty unique boat. And your clients are always hooked up with fish, so I'm like, dang, <laughs> what's that guy doing that I'm not? Well, one of it is he's guides there for seven years, and he knows all the every ins and out of the river, so that that uh, helps. But yeah, for sure, I've noticed uh, your your clients always seem to be hooked up, so it's it's pretty cool and um, so great that you were able to spend some time here with us and share some of your knowledge. So I just appreciate that and. Um, yeah, buddy. Take care, okay? All right. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for coming right. on. You're welcome. Have a good day.